Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Libya is both cause and symptom and ideal microcosm within which to view our global enduring disorder. Hello and welcome to Behind the Lines with me, Arthur Snell. Ten days ago, Storm Daniel passed through the Mediterranean, one of a bewildering number of extreme weather events in recent months. When it hit Libya, torrential rainfall led to catastrophic floods in the town of Derna. At the time of recording, as many as 20,000 people are missing feared death. It was an example of the terrifying new reality of the climate breakdown, where entire cities can be wiped out by wildfires or floods, literally in a matter of hours. But everything has a context. And the context in Derna is a city that is located in one of the most chaotic countries on earth, where government services barely function. And the concept of government itself is contested between different rulers in rival areas of the territory. To get a fuller understanding of the situation in Derna and Libya, I was delighted to be able to speak to Jason Pack, who is a Libya expert and author of the book Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder. As we covered in our discussion, what happens in Libya is in some respects a microcosm of a much bigger global crisis, which is also the subject of a new podcast that Jason is bringing out called Disorder. So, Jason, you're the author of the book Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder, and you're also the host of the new Disorder podcast. But I want to start with Libya itself, and most particularly the tragic recent events in the town of Derna, where almost an entire city was swept away in one single devastating uh, extreme weather event. Uh, Tell the listeners first, What is Derna? Where is it in Libya? And where does it fit in Libya's current disordered state? Sure. Pleasure to be on Behind the Lines with you, Arthur. 
unfortunately for Libyans and, and tragically, their country has over the last 15 or more years provided many microcosms within which to view the disordered globe around us. What happened on Sunday, the 10th of September, is that Storm Daniel crossed the Mediterranean from Greece and began having torrential rains into eastern Libya. And Derna is at the bottom of a wadi, and then there are cliffs that dun onto the Mediterranean. There have been floods there between World War II and the 1970s many times, with a small number of people killed. But in the 1970s, a Yugoslav company built a dam there, and those dams have held since they were built in the 70s until September 10th. And due to a constellation of factors that are quite indicative of the global disorder we have around us, what could have been a preventable tragedy was compounded, and what could have been done to save people was not done. The dams broke when they didn't need to break. Water could have been pre-released from them. And even worse than that, people who could have been evacuated were told to shelter in place. So thousands, if not tens of thousands, died in a tragically avoidable way, an unoptimal solution to a problem due to a collective action problem was reached. And that's quite like what I think happens at top table issues like climate change and tax havens. We are just, you know, like lemmings walking off a cliff without coordinating to solve a problem. Yeah. And I want to come on to those sort of global level issues, but just staying with Libya for the moment, um, the basic uh, situation in Libya is very confusing and complex. But could you explain sort of briefly for our listeners the main sort of governance blocks that exist and, and then what pertains in that area of eastern Libya? Basically, who's in charge there? The traditional understanding of the Libyan state after 2014, and that's the first war of post-Gaddafi succession. In 2011, we have the Arab Spring, which play out in Libya as an uprising, a multipolar uprising against Gaddafi that was never unified. And yes, it culminates in a government and then a series of elections, but the authorities don't ever rule the country. They don't come to establish sovereignty. But in 2014, we have two parallel entities which claim, claim governance and legitimacy. And since 2014, we've had either three or two entities at one moment, because those entities change, which claim to be the government of Libya, one usually based in Tripoli, although with strong connections to Masrata, and one usually based in Tobruk or Benghazi in the east. Um, Derna, however, is part of a different story, because long before Libya's governance bifurcated in 2014, Derna was not controlled by even the Eastern Authority. In 2012, um, Al-Qaeda linked Ansar Sharia, was the most important power in the town, and it prohibited participation in the elections. By 2014, a pro-ISIS group um, took over the town. In 2015, an Al-Qaeda-linked group kicked out the pro-ISIS group. And then 
from the end of 2018 through 2019, the Libyan National Army, which isn't national, it's just a militia in the east, led by the rogue general Khalifa Haftar, supported then by the Emirates, France, and Saudi, reconquered the town to be under the authority of this eastern government, so to speak. But Derna has always been really beyond any authority and having lots of pockets of jihadis. Yeah, and that's really fascinating. So whilst Derna, you know, anyone who looks at a map, it's it's quite a long way east in Libya. It is not kind of sort of in a happy, straightforward way, part of that eastern Libyan block. And, and as you've explained there, um, there there's, a, there's a degree to which the population uh, sort of pushes against that, um, that, that sort of authority that exists there. Does that point at all to what were clearly major failures of governance and communication. And, and uh, you know, in the initial aftermath of the disaster, there were reports that uh, people were, you know, that there were mixed messages, people were told to leave their homes, and then they were told to stay in place and so on. Is that because Derna is kind of a problematic city, that, that this unfolded in that particular way? Sadly, Libya is so fucked up if there was a potential environmental crisis, even in a more governed city, like, say, Tripoli or even, I don't know, Zawi or Zwara in the West, there still probably would have been an environmental disaster. Maybe only Masrata, which is really quite united, could have gotten out ahead of something. But in Derna, it was compounded. Yes, Libyan governance doesn't work, and there are perverse incentive structures elsewhere. For example, in Libya, petrol is subsidized to such an extent that it costs less than five U.S. cents or four British pence per liter. What do you know? People consume a lot of petrol and they smuggle a lot of it abroad. And electricity is essentially free. So it's used way, way, way too much and also diverted abroad. Um, in Dana, because it is so ungoverned and because it has a complex relationship with the rest of the Eastern authorities. And that's what we were alluding to before. It does seem more likely that the maintenance contracts for the dams were never reinitiated because foreign firms wouldn't feel comfortable going to Derna. And the Turkish firm that had the maintenance at the dams likely couldn't service them once the Eastern authorities, particularly Haftar himself, were in control in the East because he doesn't let Turkish companies operate in eastern Libya pretty much because the Turks are associated with the western Libyans and they were the ones who gave the drones that defeated Haftar in his assault on Tripoli in the second war of post-Qaddafi succession in 2019-2020. Again, I, I get that to get behind the lines, we need to get into all these details, but I think it's also important to zoom out because the details in Libya are always going to be more complicated and intertwined and internecine than in other conflicts. Uh, conflicts. Libya, the Libyan conflict and the, the, the sheer abundance of militias is much more complicated than in Syria or Yemen. But what differs in Libya is the economic dimension. And, and I think that this is not covered enough in not only the quote-unquote mainstream press, but even in the academic or policy Literature, In other words, people who are at the U.S. and U.K. governments are not grasping how the economic things really are at the root of the conflict in Libya. You can print money because there's a different rate 
for a letter of credit at the DNR as the DNR in the black market. You can smuggle subsidized goods, not only petrol, but uh, foodstuffs and, and, and pharmaceuticals and things. And the central government is a central spigot. It allocates funds for various projects, but frequently those funds can't be spent because other entities like the Audit Bureau or the Eastern Central Bank are somehow involved and can block the spending of those funds. So the economic dysfunction and competitions between multi-semi-sovereign institutions in Libya block what would otherwise be a rich country from taking care of things like repairing a dam. Yeah. In, in a way, what you're describing there is that it, it's too easy for bad actors to make money uh, and then continue to fund uh, their activities. That is no doubt true. But I think I'm trying to make a slightly different point, however clumsily, which is that the 10 million US dollars that was allocated in 2020 to fix the two dams, and there actually had been about 2 million allocated for more maintenance in 2012, those were not spent. It wasn't that they were corrupted or stolen. They simply were not spent. And the reason that they were not spent is that to do a transaction in Libya is unbelievably complicated. You require different semi-sovereign institutions, which are not controlled by a central government. The central bank is not controlled by the quote-unquote government. And that makes it different than other broken states. So if we, we look at Lebanon, where they've had a state implosion, and you know the Lebanese economy has tanked, the government controls the central bank. It's just that the central ba- bank governor made bad policy. Or in a place like Saudi, where there's a lot of corruption, the corruption benefits Mohammed bin Salman, the leader. It's not like the central bank doesn't work with the government. But in Libya, the central bank not only has two branches, the eastern and western, that don't coordinate, but it is not in any way controlled by either the eastern Tobruk or Tripoli governments. So as a case study of a fractured state, Libya is a, is a fairly extreme example. I wanted to pick up on something that you, you mentioned, though, and, and use that to help us think about the, the bigger regional picture. And, and it's this point that the Turkish firm, engineering firm, that was supposed to um, maintain the dam had not um, been in a position to fulfill its contract. And, of course, you reminded us that Turkey has sided with the Western Libyan government. And there is a lot of, um, there's a lot of aspects to that, that, you know, alliance, including the presence of a kind of Islamist strain, both in the Turkish regime and, and there in, in the Western government. And that General Haftar is seen as sort of standing up for the anti-Islamist forces in, and has gained a lot of support on that basis from regional actors. Um, and that, of course, all these questions become in, immensely complex when you when you try to get into the details of them. But there are also sometimes these big kind of regional blocks and ideological players coming in, in into the space. And I suppose I mention all that because, in a way, the big question is why is Libya like it is? You know, for for many decades, Libya was one country; it had one government, albeit a very unusual one. You know, Gaddafi was was perhaps unique in the way that he he ran Libya, um, but it was a country. And now Libya is is a place on a map. Right, Libya is terra nullius, and that's the Latin for it being just absent and devoid of sovereignty. Um, I have said since 2014, particularly since the November 6th, 2014 
Supreme Court decision in Libya that there is no government by international law. It is weird that the UN and US and UK and EU do treat Libya as having a sovereign authority so that it can receive payments and, and, and honor contracts. But Libya is really terra nullius. So then this begs the question, why is that? Yemen, Yemen, we can understand more why it's terra nullius. The tribes have always dominated the government and the government has never really even been able to do things like open schools and peripheral areas or whatever. Whereas the Qaddafian state functioned as a state, it centralized power, it collected oil revenue, it dispersed that revenue, it got literacy rates from the 1960s, which were less than 30%, up to over 90% by the end of the 1970s. You know, it it did a lot as a state. It it even built these dams. Um, And the answer to this question has to do with the nature of the Qaddafian state, which was inherited by the post-Qaddafian state, and doesn't have to do with what I think a lot of our government officials think, oh, we in the West made another one of these regime change operations. And then, you know, in the wake of regime change operations, no one knows how to nail the reconstruction phase. And what do you know, Iraq and Afghanistan were fucked up. It must have been the same in Libya. Completely wrong. The Libyan situation is we didn't do an intervention. There's no we. And the reason that it is the way it is now has nothing to do with the NATO bombs that were dropped. It has only to do with the nature of the Qaddafian economy. Qaddafi wrote something called the Green Book, which is actually three books, which came out between 1973 and 1979, and they call for a massocracy, a jamahiriya. And some people would say these books were never fully implemented, but they were implemented enough, and they created a governance structure with many different nodes these nodes in the post-Qaddafi period become the semi-sovereign institutions. It might not seem to have mattered that in the Qaddafi period, there was a thing called the Office of Development of Administrative Centers. And it had tens of billions of dollars of cash and hundreds of billions of dollars of liabilities. But that didn't really matter because the person who was appointed to it, who happens to be Ali Dubaiba, the uncle of the current quasi-prime minister of Libya, was doing what Qaddafi asked him to do. But in the post-Qaddafi period, these semi-sovereign institutions, like the Office of Development of Administrative Centers, as well as the Central Bank and the National Oil Corporation, they don't do what a central government asked them to do, and they have tens of billions of dollars and hundreds of billions of liabilities, and they behave in certain very bizarre and competing ways. I'll give one example on this point. In Libya, we have an entity called GCAL. GCAL is the General Electric Corporation of Libya. You might think of it as the Ministry of Electricity. However, it's a semi-sovereign institution. By Libyan law, it has the right to seize crude from the National Oil Corporation if it is deemed necessary to produce electricity for the Libyan people. This is very, very weird. It means that some of the sweetest and most desirable crude on earth, for example, that which comes from the Sharara field in the Fezan, is produced by the National Oil Corporation, and it could get top dollar if it would just get to the oil port of Zawiya on the Mediterranean, and that's slightly to the west of Tripoli. But 
because you have these two competing entities, GCAL seizes some of the crude in the fields because it says the residents of southern Libya don't have enough electricity. It burns this crude in an unbelievably inefficient and environmentally dangerous manner to produce electricity for those residents. When, if the crude would just get to the Mediterranean and be sold, you could import tons of natural gas or refined product or build solar panels to more effectively serve the electricity needs of the residents of southern Libya. So we're talking about a, a situation of dysfunction, which I just I picked a random example to illustrate, which is completely different than what exists in other post-conflict states and has to do with the nature of the Qaddafian economy, how letters of credit are issued, for example, how visas are issued, which creates the nature of dysfunction that we have in Libya, which is that there was more than enough money and there was even a desire to fix these dams. But it is nearly impossible to coordinate the different entities to get the dam maintenance contracts fulfilled. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, and so what you're describing there is a collective action problem. And of course, that leads us, uh, I might even say neatly, on to... uh, the sort of the, the global picture. And of course, you, you wrote the book, Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder. And some people might say, well, you know, Libya is just a one-off place. It's, it's you know, because of the Gaddafi uh, system, it's completely dysfunctional now. As you say, you could even call it terra nullius. It's, it's just a line on the map. But it's got, it, it's ultimately, it doesn't really matter in the global context. But you, you, don't, you don't say that. You, you actually see Libya as both affecting, but also a kind of illustration of the current global disorder. So perhaps you could unpick that argument a bit for us. Exactly. Libya is both cause and symptom and ideal microcosm within which to view our global enduring disorder. Now, I know this is a bold claim, so let me say there are other such illustrations. I I wrote this book in 2019. It got published in 2021. And I mentioned that Ukraine was another such example, as well as Syria and Yemen, and to some extent, Venezuela. So what are the key features that we're looking at here? We're looking at a lack of sovereignty. I would argue in the international system, we have a total lack of sovereignty over the most important collective action challenges. No one country or institution has the ability to block firms from emitting carbon. In a way, you might argue even the U.S. government can't block firms because we have an EPA and then we also have 
a fairly libertarian tradition, making it extremely difficult to, you know, block a private company from emitting carbon emissions. Yeah. And then when it comes to global taxes, as money has become more fluid and more fungible, you know, Russian oligarchs, but also Nigerian billionaires and equatorial Ghanaian rulers, they move billions around the world. And whether it's sitting in the Cayman Islands or the city of London, it might never be taxed. Well, we don't even know if it is taxed or we don't know how much it is. Yeah. Because the top table issues that we're dealing with on the globe are issues for which there is not one sovereign and there is not one set of rules and there are competing institutions. But I would argue if you look deeper at Libya and you see these various competing authorities, as well as penetration by international actors on opposite sides, and it's not just the Turks and the Emiratis on opposite sides. We have to remember that core EU and NATO countries like France and Italy are on opposite sides of a hot civil war in Libya. You get to understand a lot about the global system, which is that in America, Elon Musk and Bezos could be on opposite sides from the U.S. government on how AI is regulated. And then the U.S. government may have a slightly different policy than the EU about how to handle the taxation of, you know, the big four tech companies. So yeah. we are experiencing a global lack of sovereignty, the lack of coordinating institutions, and this leads to massive collective action failure. And I, I would say that our leaders better look more at places like Libya because if we don't get our shit in gear, we're not going to create the institutions to prevent the kind of state collapse, which is quite possible on top table issues like AI, climate change and tax havens as they gain in complexity in the 2030s and beyond. Yeah. So one question about this is, is always to, to go into history, and I'm talking fairly recent history. Um, this is a new phenomenon, right? Because in a way, you might someone might say, well, there's always been this problem, you know, that there's never been a world government, you know, we've always had to come together to, to manage these complex issues. Uh, but you see this as a recent development, and particularly a post-Cold War development. I do. Um, of course, there's never been a global government. But essentially, from the period 1815 until either 2003 or 1991, depending on how you look at it, there was an Anglo-American sovereign. And that Anglo-American sovereign was a hegemonic power that enforced the terms of trade. This could mean that, you know, we had Washington Consensus Economics, which I don't love, but at least they were done uniformly, or Britain was keeping the naval lanes open and the gold standard. And the most important collective action problems were solved by the global hegemon working with allies or constraining uh, bad or rogue actors. This is not the case anymore. The top table issues are not enforced by a coalition of America and her allies. Maybe we are able to do so on a security level, i.e. to prevent nuclear war, to check the Russian aggression in Ukraine, and I'm very proud and happy about that. But I don't see physical security as the top table issue that we are going to be facing in the, you know, next decades. Yeah. And that's why at my Disorder podcast, we do consider the top 10 issues, the ones that I keep on banging on about, kleptocracy and tax havens, uh, climate change and geopolitics, of which you are a significant expert, and 
than the struggle for global leadership. We break one down per episode and we see how in the past it was more regulated and now it's less regulated and propose solutions on how to regulate it more and how to coordinate our action towards it. At risk of oversimplification, is this then really a question about the decline of American hegemony, the rise of China, and what you might call the, the, the start of a multipolar world, which ironically, you know, some people talked about a multipolar world in, in the early 21st century as a reaction against uh, the sort of war on terror and the George Bush era. But, but ultimately, that, it, was not, it was not to be. Whereas now, I think we accept that we are entering that multipolar world. No, I don't accept that. I think that that is the common realist IR approach and, and, and quote unquote, the mainstream media picks it up. But multipolarity doesn't bother me. We're in the global enduring disorder, which is nonpolar. Multipolarity means that there are poles of order, say Beijing, Brussels, Washington, maybe some Latin American grouping, Southeast Asian states, and they exert order and they, they have a fully formed economic system and they want to order their near abroad or their sphere of influence. I don't see that. So the, the problem with multipolarity is that it sees Putin as a sense of order. Oh, he's just fighting for a sphere of influence in Ukraine or he has a trade deal with the Kazakhs and the Armenians to order them. And that's false. Stalin and the Soviet Union had such a system. They had an ideology. They had an economic system. If a country like Cuba signs up, they give you a fully-fledged economic system with textbooks and an ideology, and you read your Lenin, and this is how it functions. Putin doesn't have that. There's no Putinistic economic system. You can't read a a book which says this is how a Putin economy works. It's a non-system. Putin is trying to disorder the world. He wants to disorder Ukraine. He wants to inject contagion into the U.S., not so that we would vote for a Putinist system, but just so that we're disordered. And that is extremely different than the Soviet Union. They tried to spread communism to Italy. They have communist parties in various African countries. It was a kind of order. And you might say, well, the Chinese want order. And it's not very clear that they do. They're not trying to export a Chinese economic or ideological model to Vietnam or Japan. They merely want those countries to get out of their way and allow them to have their wishes and their power. So I would argue China disorders its near abroad. And this is really shown by the fact that in the five top table geopolitical conflicts, Ukraine, Libya, Syria, Yemen, and the Chinese have no solutions. There is no Chinese involvement in the civil war in Syria or Yemen or Libya to solve it. They don't have an order that they're trying to propose as a solution to end the conflict in Ukraine because they're not an ordering power. And what's different about our era and why we have to unpack it with a, you know, a disorder podcast to change the whole paradigm in which we look at things is that this is historically novel. It might have existed in the 30 years war. So back in the 17th century and before, but it hasn't really existed at the global level from 1648 until the last 20 years. And this idea of a of a of the lack of ordering powers, um, it it puts in mind actually I, I think a recent case study 
which which on one level we're talking about very small countries and you might say that in a way that it, it doesn't it doesn't have enough sort of global impact but i think it's illustrative and, and i'm talking about Azerbaijan and Armenia. And, and as you'll be well aware, in the, the enclave that's inside the territory of Azerbaijan, where the population is ethnically Armenian, Nagorno-Karabakh, um, Azerbaijan put a kind of full siege on that enclave, effectively submitted people to conditions of near starvation. And then just in the last 48 hours, they've, they've uh, sort of uh, undertaken a military operation. And basically, that seems to have led to the complete capitulation of the population there. Now, what, the reason I mention that is because uh, the ability to act in this disordering way uh, with, with no real regard for what you might call global powers or the, the sort of international community and the rules of the game, it seems to me that's a very 2020s kind of way of behaving and that a wealthy and self-confident country such as Azerbaijan, albeit a small one, feels it can behave a bit like a kind of 19th century imperialist power. Wow. That was really well put. And you draw on multiple strands of the global enduring disorder there. One is the way in which medium powers are empowered. Yeah. Medium powers rule the roost now. The top military powers in Libya are Turkey, the UAE, and some private mercenaries from Russia. They're not the US or EU, yeah. right? Um, then it's the lack of coordination by the traditional powers to handle places like Libya or the Nagorno-Karabakh war. And then one thing that we haven't talked enough about is the way in which technology has entirely changed the game. The reason the Azeris won the Nagorno-Karabakh war of two years ago is because they had the Turkish Bayraktar drones. And that's the same reason that the uh, Libyan forces in the West allied with then GNA Prime Minister Siraj and then Interior and Defense Minister Fatih Bashara, they defeated General Haftar. They had the same Turkish Bayraktar drones and the anti, anti-aircraft anti systems that can jam uh, Russian Pantsir missiles. Fortunately for us, the Ukrainians have these too. They can jam Russian Pantsirs and they have Turkish Bayraktars. But the Azeris have that technology and they just destroyed the Armenians, you know? Um, Yes. But the situation in Armenia and, and, and Azerbaijan is so complicated because you have Russia as a patron of both sides. You have the Israelis working with the Muslim power. And you have the Western countries where we have huge and very wealthy and politically powerful Armenian populations, namely France and the U.S., not working to save the Armenians. That, like, really encapsulates how... The global enduring disorder is not just strange bedfellows. It's an incoherence of action. One of the things that I tackled with the global enduring disorder paradigm in my book, but we're delving much deeper into in the disorder podcast, is that our old classical IR ways of thinking about the world are out of date. In other words, looking at a conflict and saying the Turkish are on this side and the Russians are on that side. That's like 19th century thinking. It's like completely out of date. The Turkish are on multiple sides. The Turkish and the Russians collaborate and coordinate in the very same civil wars that they fight each other in. So in Syria and Libya, where they back opposite sides, they also coordinate and are happy for the conflict to continue. Who's to say that Ukraine is not the same? Turkey and Russia are disordering power, so they don't mind if they have to, you know, 
even have a few mercenaries killed or have a few military trainers kill each other. That's not problematic for Erdogan or Putin. They are happy to be frenemies. And the, the fight in the public is a bit of a show, not only for their own populations, for the West, but to confuse us and have our leaders actually think that they're on opposite sides. They're not. The global enduring disorder differs from other historical eras in that major powers are happy to just inhabit a disordered world because this means that neo-populists, not only Erdogan and Putin, but Orban and the Bolsonaros and Giorgio Maloney, who's elected, uh, they can stay in office. The more the world is disordered, the easier it is to say, I'm going to block the migrants from, from coming to England. I'm going to deal with this small boat issue. So what do you know? If you're a neo-populist, you don't want to deal with the small boat issue so that you can just say, I'm running on the small boat issue to stay in office. Trump said he was going to build a wall to block the migrants. He didn't build the wall. We have more migrants than before. So he can run yet again to say, I'm going to stop the migrants. And if he gets into office, he's not going to stop the migrants. And we see those dynamics with the way that the Turkish and Russians, you know, coordinate with each other in these war zones. Yeah, it's fascinating. So this idea of disordering powers, and, and as you say, you can have fairly cynical leaders, Putin not at all uh, concerned at, you know, a, a few mercenaries here and there being blown up. Uh, Erdogan similarly probably pretty relaxed about that. But even even in dem democratic contexts, whether it's Viktor Orban, Georgia Meloni, others, uh, and, and yes, there's a populist strain clearly in the UK, um, the uh, disorder which plays into people's fears can be an extraordinary, extraordinarily powerful uh, electoral concept. Um, we're talking, Jason, of course, in the week of the UN General Assembly. Anyone listening to this discussion would think, well, what's the UN for? You know, <laughs> that, that's the whole point. The UN's supposed to step in and, and coordinate stuff. And right, be, I, well, we can hear your laughter. So let, let's talk a bit about the UN. Why is the UN well, not? I'll tell you what the UN coordinates. It coordinates the traffic when I go to my physio because I drive from, from Jersey into Manhattan to do my physio twice a week. It took me two hours and 15 minutes to go about 25 miles yesterday. Because of all and the heads of state limos. This happens every year. But this year, the Russians and the Chinese, we knew were going to be absent. But the top table French and British delegations were absent. There isn't even a the joking facade of the UN being an ordering power. It used to be that just on the American right, you know, we'd have the neocons and, and Douglas Fife and Rumsfeld saying the UN is broken. Now, even Macron uh, is like not here. And the French are the kind of the, the, the example of people who used to want the UN as a counterbalance to American power. I mean, it, it, it's, it's hallucinatingly absurd that, the UN is now a junket. That's why there's all this traffic. The shortcomings of the UN are, are undoubted, and particularly in an era where Russia in particular, but also China, acts as a, as a sort of veto-wielding power, prepared to block almost any kind of attempts to deal, for example, with the war in, in Syria and, and, you know, more recently, clearly on, on Ukraine. Um, is, is it... Is it then that we need new structures? Because we talk about NATO, but NATO is clearly is limited in its in its geographical extent. Uh, NATO deals with one particular sort of thing. Uh, 
how are we going to tackle, for example, perhaps the biggest problem of all, climate change, if we don't have something like the UN that actually works? Exactly. How are we going to order the disorder? I got fed up reading the news and listening to various other podcasts and, you know, checking out think tank papers and realizing there are no solutions. So I created the Disorder Podcast that was going to have an ordering the disorder segment at the end of every show where we propose implementable solutions. And exactly as you've said, we need new ways of doing things. We're facing mid 21st century problems. And soon we're going to be facing problems that we haven't even ever heard of. Like when the rogue AI doesn't allow you to do whatever, we need new kinds of entities and new kinds of binding institutions to deal with them. And I know that that may sound very vague, but one of the principles of these institutions, I believe, is that nation states are going to vest them with degrees of sovereignty and degrees of enforcement, and that a bottom-up process is going to happen at the same time that a top-down process is happening. The reason why global governance is a curse word of the right now is because in The big Western electorates, people don't want to vote for global governance now. They think of global governance as like the stop the oil protesters, you know, some hippie kids who want to chain themselves to a lamppost. Give it 10 years, the extent of the crisis that we're going to be facing in a bottom up fashion, people are going to be voting with not only at the ballot box, but with their dollars that what they want in their life is order and they will be very happy to vest institutions that power to coordinate how we regulate AI or that we have, you know, universal vaccine passports or whatever the situation may be, because this disorder is only going to get worse before it gets better. We're coming towards the end of our time, Jason. You've mentioned your podcast. Uh, Just tell the listeners um, where they can find it, uh, who some of your other presenters are, some of your guests, a a bit more detail. You can find the disorder podcast wherever any fine purveyor of podcasts uh, exists like Apple podcasts and Spotify, just search disorder. Uh, Please follow the show. You'll get to hear Arthur talk about climate change. Um, Jonathan Powell, who was Tony Blair's former chief of staff, talk about the psychology of chaos. Why is it that we're not able to negotiate as effectively as we were in the past? I don't think that something like the Northern Ireland negotiations could happen now And that has to do with the way in which social media radicalizes people and echo chambers and whatever. Um, We have on some guests who talk about the way in which the city of London in the financial markets spews disorder in our episode seven on dirty money. David Patrick Karakos, who is a journalist, he's our roving correspondent. He was in Ukraine. He's on the cyberspace episode, episode two, which is out now. I think that People who enjoy your podcasts and your output will take really easy to the Disorder podcast with the added hook that maybe we're more conceptual. Well, I think that's going to be fascinating. I encourage listeners to check it out. And I want to thank you, Jason, for joining me today on Behind the Lines. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can find the details of Jason's podcast in the show notes, as well as his book and other activities. If you're not yet a subscriber to this podcast, please consider becoming one via whichever platform you use to listen. And if you enjoyed it, 
please give us a good review and spread the word. I'll see you next time when I'll be talking about the geopolitics of football with Miguel Delaney, who is chief football writer at The Independent. Goodbye. Behind the Lines with Arthur Snell has been a Vinyl Street production. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.